0: Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Nehemiah. If you don't know where that is, there is no shame in using the table of contents to find it. Um, So about a week and a half ago, a mom was driving down San Juan Avenue. She took a right on Lane Avenue, and she got about in front of What's Cooking?, Right over here, and her daughter, in the back seat, 12 years old, caught a bullet in the hand. She was shot. The girl's going to be fine, um, but it was one of many things that have been happening lately that show us an uptick in crime in our area. Just a few days after that, um, on a Sunday evening, last Sunday evening, actually, uh, right in front of the Vietnamese church, right next to West Side Baptist Church. Uh, there was two cars shooting at each other, and some of the bullets went into the Vietnamese church. Praise God, they weren't meeting, and no one was hurt. Now, man, what a shocking thing to get up here and start this whole thing with. Here, here's why I wanted to tell you that. I want to throw up something, page 320 in the Story Bible, if you don't have it. I want to throw up this on the screen. If, if you looked at it on the news, Action News Jacks and you went to their website... The bottom of their article, they had this chart that um, <clears throat> I couldn't get out of my head. I, after looking at it, I just I couldn't get it out of my head. It just kept it kept just ringing back in my head. This is Action News. Jacks did this chart, and they said this is a chart of all the crime that's been reported within a half mile radius of where the twelve year old girl was shot. So basically, a half mile radius of where we sit right now. Within a half-mile radius of where you are sitting right now, in the last six months, this is the reported crime. Now, we all know that not all crime gets reported. So this is just what's been reported. 16 vehicle thefts, 12 vehicle break-ins, 7 robberies, 58 property thefts, 20 burglaries. And this is the one that really stood out to me. 44 assaults have been reported in a half-mile radius of where we sit in the last six months. So what do we do with that? What do you, how, do you, how do you respond to that? As I sat and prayed and thought about it, I thought about there's a phrase we came up with early on when I came here, parish perspective. We talked about how we desire as a church to have a parish perspective. You may say parish, that's the Louisiana coming out in you because in Louisiana, we don't have counties. We have parishes. That's not exactly what I'm talking about. Counties. What I'm talking about is the old Catholic model of a parish. And here's what I mean. See, in the old Catholic model of a parish, that church has a, listen to me, this is so key. That church has a spiritual responsibility. Everybody say spiritual responsibility for people in a geographic area whether they ever come to that church or not now here this is this is significant so what i mean is there is this idea that we're not only attempting to love spiritually the people who walk into this building but that we have a spiritual responsibility for kind of a geographic area Around us, and the, the verse we would use to build this idea of Paris' perspective was Jeremiah chapter twenty nine, verse seven. If you've been here for a while, you've heard me quote that verse many times. Jeremiah twenty nine: The Israelites have been exiled. Some of them are in Babylon, and there are these Israelites in Babylon. Babylon is on the wrong side of the tracks. Babylon is where all the gentlemen's clubs would be. Babylon is where all the pagan activity would happen. And so, that the Jewish people naturally said. Look, guys, let's, let's hold up. Let's, let's avoid what's going on out there. Let's kind of pull ourselves together. We'll kind of create our own little area, and we'll not worry about everything that's going on out there because we'll be out of here soon. Surely God doesn't want us to stay here. And so false prophets started to rise up within the exiled Israelites to say, Hey, don't worry, we won't be here long. But through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29... God says, no, you're going to be here for a while. And as a matter of fact, here's what I want you to do. Here's here's the command that God gives the Israelites through Jeremiah in chapter 29, verse 7. He says, I want you to seek the welfare and prosperity of the city where you have been sent into exile. I want you to pray for the city where you have been sent into exile. He gives them this mandate to, to engage The community. Here's, here's, uh, in in God's sovereign control, I had a blank week this week to preach whatever I wanted to preach. And so we're taking a break from Acts and I left this one just intentionally open and, and it's because I really feel like God wanted me to talk about this. Because when I see this, here's what I realize. We've got three choices. We can ignore it, Pretend like it's not true. We can avoid it. We can hold up and be like the Israelites in Babylon and, and say, look, let's just do everything we can to keep everybody safe. So get in here real quick. Don't spend much time outside. Don't engage the community because it's dangerous. We could do that. Or we could engage it with prayer, with action. And pointing them to the Redeemer of the gospel, Jesus Christ. It's not going to be easy. So, here, here's what I would tell you. I was thinking about it. As a church, I believe it is a biblical mandate that we have a parish perspective. Now, maybe that phrase isn't a biblical mandate. That's my phrase I made up. But that idea, right when jesus was asked what what are the what's the most important commandment he said the first is to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength but the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself and so then a guy a lawyer says so who's my neighbor and jesus goes on to tell this incredibly controversial, racially charged, class charged, economically charged, politically charged story. See, we love the story of the Good Samaritan, but I think sometimes we miss the depth of what's really happening in that story. Jews and Samaritans did not hang out with each other. There was serious tension there. And so to a Jewish leader, Jesus' answer of what who's my neighbor, is to tell a story where the Samaritan's the hero. And it's, and it's gritty, and it's ugly, and it's costly. So here, here's, here's what I'm thinking. Either as a church, we have to own that, and own that this is our community, and realize that it's no accident that this church is where it is. And listen to me, it's no accident that our neighbors are who they are. And either we own that, Or, if we're going to choose to ignore it or avoid it, we need to start a relocation campaign right now. We need to sell the property, find a nice neighborhood, and move there. And if that's the direction the church decides as a whole to go, just know I will probably be prayerfully putting in my resignation. Because I don't think that's what God would have us do. I think God put us right here. Because the light shines the brightest in the darkness. Because when I see this stat, I don't want to run and hide. I want to figure out what do we do. I want to get involved somehow. I want to go shine the light of the gospel into these lives. I want to know the names of 44 people who have been assaulted in the last six months in a half-mile radius of where I stand right now. I want to know their names, and I want to pray for them, and I want to share the gospel with them, and I want to to know the names of the people who assaulted them. I want to love them with the gospel. So today, we're going to look at the story of Nehemiah. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible somewhere around you that says the story on top of it. It's page 320 in that Bible. If you just don't know where to find Nehemiah in your Bible, you can just borrow that one and just turn to page 320. I'm not going to read chapters 1 through 4 and make you stand. Don't worry. We're going to kind of spot through it some. I want to give you a little historical context about the book so you can understand since we're only doing one Sunday in it. You may notice the book before Nehemiah is a book called Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah historically are really the same book written by the same author, Ezra. Um, this is, so think back to Jeremiah twenty nine seven. <clears throat> Israelites are exiled. <clears throat> this is many years after that, as they, through a few waves, start making their way back to Israel. Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, as one book, really kind of tell the story of three significant leaders in that kind of rebuilding effort of getting back to Israel out of exile. So the first one is Zerubbabel. Um, we have several ladies in here that are pregnant, a name to consider, Zerubbabel, a good biblical name. Zerubbabel actually means planted in Babylon. That's what the name means. It's it's about... So all these leaders are are coming from exile as well. And so Zerubbabel is the first one in Ezra that leads a large group back to Israel to rebuild the temple. Kind of the first step, right? The most important thing is to rebuild that temple. Now the problem was... Historically, when the temple or the tabernacle was set up and built, God would make his presence known at the completion through fire or some sort of grand gesture, which is why at at, at Acts 2 in the Pentecost, God shows his presence in this grand gesture, right? But see, Zerubbabel has people rebuild the temple and then nothing happens. There's no... Grand display of God's presence. So then, the second wave comes with Ezra. Ezra was a teacher. Ezra was a Torah teacher, and so Ezra. Um, so Zerubbabel was led was to, was told by the Persian King Cyrus to lead Israelites back and rebuild the temple. Ezra was appointed by Artaxerxes to lead more Israelites out of Babylon. Ezra really focused on teaching the Torah and rebuilding kind of the that Jewish community and, and how to live in biblical community together. And so Ezra's focus was teaching the word. <clears throat> Many years after that, we'll see Ezra kind of messes up too. Ezra got real upset because all these stories don't end well, and it's one of the things you got to get. Uh, e- Ezra's story is as, he, as he's teaching the word and he's teaching all this, he notices that th- A lot of these Jewish people that didn't uh, have to exile ended up marrying non-Jewish people. And Ezra gets really mad about it. And without God's blessing, decrees this whole divorce thing. Like, if you're married to a non-Jewish person, you got to divorce them and send them away right now. And only like a handful of people end up doing it. And we don't see a great movement of God. So then comes Nehemiah. Well, Nehemiah as we'll see, gets permission and resources also from Artaxerxes to rebuild the walls. But here's what I want you to see first with Nehemiah. Just in the first three verses, I want you to see that awareness should lead to action and not apathy. So often we see stuff like that crime chart, and and for a moment maybe it Tugs on some heartstrings for a moment. Maybe it makes you realize or feel something, or but then you realize, uh, and, and this is this part I get. You go, but what can what in the world can I do about that? What am I supposed to do? I mean, Pastor, are you asking me to go stand on the street corner and yell at people? I don't I don't know what you want me to do. You to know, go door to door and say, "Hey, are you one of the guys that was assaulted or did assaulting?" over the last six months because my pastor wants to know your name. What, what are you supposed to do? But so often it just leads to apathy and we just end up avoiding it, ignoring it. Look what happens here. Nehemiah, <clears throat> this is the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hacaliah. Now, happened in the month of Kislev, which is around November, December, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile. So Nehemiah's gotten word that people are making it back to Israel, and and he wants to know. So what's happening, man? How's everybody doing? And concerning Jerusalem, here's what they said to him. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great Trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. It's almost like they came to him with that crime chart. And they said, Man, here's here's what's going on. It's bad. Now you hear that and you go, Okay, so some walls fell down. Maybe that's not that big of a deal. In that time, A city had to have walls. That was the way a city defended itself, protected itself. As a matter of fact, there's a proverb that says, a man without restraint is like a city without walls. So it gives this analogy and this idea of when a city doesn't have walls, it's it's vulnerable to any and every attack. And there are plenty of enemies. And, And so some even believe... So if you read in Ezra... Ezra even requested, sent a request back to Artaxerxes uh, to rebuild the walls, and the answer was no. It was in Artaxerxes' first year reigning as Persian king, and his answer was, was no, and some historians believe that though the walls were already in rubble, at that point Artaxerxes sent people to destroy whatever was left, to make it real clear, I've let you go back to Israel, but you're still under my thumb. I'm still the king. So... We have a significant situation that happens here. So what does it look like to engage brokenness? When we look at a crime stat, or listen to me, maybe that crime stat does nothing for you. Because maybe your world is so jacked up right now that you can't even pay attention to what's going on outside of your own world. You can barely see past your nose. Because you are addicted or depressed, you're broke and you can't figure out how to make ends meet right now, whatever's going on in your world, listen to me, whatever brokenness is going on in your world, as as you become aware of it, what what do you do with it? How do you approach brokenness? First was bold prayer, bold prayer. Verse 4, Nehemiah. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down, which is a sign of mourning, and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Listen, this verse is why I chose to preach this passage today. Because for a week and a half, I have not been able to rest well because of that crime chart. Because that's right here, guys. It's right here. We've talked about so many times that the demographics show us that within a three-mile radius of where we sit, the most conservative estimate is 60,000 lost souls within a three-mile radius of where we sit. That literally keeps me up at night sometimes. The fact that we've been on the news, I I know at least three times this year, not the name Redemption Church being mentioned, but just the news crews being right here, because this is where the crime happened. When the cops chased down a, a, a car robber up to this intersection right here and shot him right in front of our church for for a day, for over a day, the news crews were right here, roads were blocked off, and almost every news report you saw our Redemption Church banner just waving in the background. So what do we do with that? Do we just pretend like that's not real? Do we ignore it? Or can we be bold enough to engage it? Listen, the first place we engage isn't hard to figure out. You don't have to be some leadership genius like Nehemiah to figure out what to do first. The first best step about brokenness in your life is prayer. This is what Nehemiah does. And he doesn't, look, he doesn't just throw up this popcorn prayer. It's not this just prayer request time. It's not, you know, hey man, did you hear about what's going on? Down in Israel, man, that's awful. That's just awful. I hate what's going on down in Israel. Anyway, what do you guys want to do for lunch today? Oh, for days, he wept. He mourned. He fasted. He prayed. He knew. Listen, you got to get, this is a guy, as we'll see in a minute, who has the ear of the king. This is big. He has the ear of the king. It'd be like, what if I were best friends with the mayor and the governor? I'm not. Never even met him. What if I were? And what if when I saw that crime stat, what if the first thing I did was call them? I think that'd be wrong. Even if they were my best friends. See, he he has the ear of the king. But the first thing he does is not rush to the king and go, let me tell you what I've heard about my people and I'm heartbroken, can you help me? He does do that. We're going to get there. But the first thing he does, the first thing he does is pray. And not just pray, but boldly, fervently pray. Why? Because he knows that king has no power. God has all the power. Listen, I don't know how to fix... Rising crime and decreasing education and decreasing family structures and all the things the demographics and statistics show us. I, I honestly don't know how to go out and systematically fix those things. I don't. But I know the one who does. And I know, I know <coughs> that if we as a church took that seriously, and even if even if we all we did was commit to pray, but really pray, I'm convinced it would make a difference. I'm convinced it would make a difference. Nehemiah doesn't just have fervent prayer. He has confessional prayer. Now, we obviously don't have record of everything that he prayed. It would take a long time to read days and days of prayer. We have some of it here in verses 5 through 11. And uh, we see that the bulk of it is what I would call confessional. Here's what I mean by that. First is confessing how great God is and how he can depend on God. And then it's confessing his sin. And then it's confessing the sin of his people. And then it's back to confessing how great God is. What a great example of how to pray. Let's look at it. Verses 5 through 11 in chapter 1. And I said, Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who keep him and his commandments. One of the things you'll see here is he's praying scripture. (coughs) It's one of the things I've tried to teach for you guys, especially, listen, I'm begging you, I'm begging you, come to our 8.45 prayer time on Sunday mornings. And come, come pray with me over this church and over this city. Please, come to, come with me on Sunday mornings, 8.45. We pray scripture, we look at the Psalms and we pray scripture together. <clears throat> He's, you'll see Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 4, all being quoted, woven throughout his prayer. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. There is an old Sunday morning cartoon out of the newspaper, B.C. I used to love reading the Sunday comics in the paper back when we still printed things on paper. And uh, there's this old BC comic. It's all prehistoric, and he's like chiseling a wheel. And they're sitting there, and one guy looks at the other and says, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why he allowed all these horrible things to happen in the world. The other guy looks back at him in a little thought bubble, says, be careful, because he might ask you the same question. See, Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is in the business of reconciling the world back to himself. I love Colossians 1. Colossians 1 is one of my favorite sections of scripture. It's about the preeminence of Christ. Preeminence means Jesus before everything. It's about the preeminence of Christ. And one of the things it talks about is that he is is reconciling the world back to himself. That it's all broken. Romans 8 says all of creation was subjected to futility. 1 Corinthians 5 says that in that, that while Christ is in the process of reconciling us to him, he's then commissioned us as his ambassadors to be ministers of his reconciliation. In other words, God's plan for reconciling the brokenness of the world back to himself is us. His church. This is why it's such a big deal when we look at a crime stat like that that we cannot ignore it. This is why I honestly tell you something so bold that if the church as a whole were to vote by a large majority and say, This da- this neighborhood is too dangerous, let's move to a safe neighborhood, I would resign. I would resign. Because I think it's wonderful that God has us right here. I think it's amazing. I think it's God's grace and God's sovereignty and God's goodness that he would put a church right here. But we got to own it. we got to engage. And we do, so many of you do, in so many great ways. Verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. This is out of Deuteronomy 4. Saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Exiled. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the earth, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Remember why? What is the purpose of all things? We've talked about this before. The first question in catechism is what is the primary purpose of man? And it is to what? Anybody, anybody know the catechism? Say it again. To love God and to, to glorify God. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. I love John Piper. Changes one word and makes it a whole lot better to me. To glorify God by enjoying him. Forever. Right? So even here it says, as he's quoting Deuteronomy, I I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So why? In other words, why would God bring his people back to Israel? Why would he bring them back out of exile altogether? Why? To make his name glorified. To make his name dwell right there. And then Nehemiah says, They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What man? was going to move from just prayer. He's going to move into some action here in just a second. In one region in Africa, the first converts of Christianity were very diligent about praying. In fact, the believers each had their own special place they would set outside of the village where they went to pray in solitude. It was almost like their, their little prayer room or prayer closet. And The villagers reached these prayer rooms by using their very own private footpaths through the brush. And so they would walk the same path. You ever, you ever seen how cows do that? You ever looking at a, you ever look at a cow, cow path? Cows walk the same path every time. I don't know if you know that. They walk the same trail, and so it'll wear out dirt where the cow goes the same exact way every time. So these African villagers would do the same thing. They would walk this path. And so when one villager would see another villager's path wasn't as worn down they would come back and say brother there's grass on your path there was an accountability to this idea see i think prayer <clears throat> i think intellectually we all agree if i if i said who believes that prayer is the most powerful way to change things everybody here i believe would say amen yes absolutely i agree okay so let's take it seriously let's take it seriously One day, George Mueller, who is my hero in prayer, um, in our free library area in the uh, hallway, we have a couple of biographies on George Mueller. George Mueller, I'm not going to go into his whole story, but he just a phenomenal prayer warrior. I mean, unbelievable. Uh, The things he accomplished through prayer. He created what we know today as orphanages, orphanages. and when he was able to staff them, finance them, all these things, amazing things, feed all these kids just through the power of prayer. Uh, it was journaled that he maybe had somewhere around five to 10,000 prayers that he had journaled that were answered. One day, George Mueller began praying for five of his friends, and every day he would just pray for those five friends. After many months, one of those five came to the Lord. Ten years later, two others were converted. It took 25 years before the fourth man was saved. Mueller persevered in prayer until his death for the fifth friend. And throughout those 52 years of praying for this friend, he never gave up in hoping that this friend would accept Christ. And his faith was rewarded, for soon after Mueller died, the fifth one was saved. Listen, I will, until my dying breath, challenge the body of Christ to engage the community. I will, because I believe so wholeheartedly this is what Scripture calls us to. It's going to get frustrating, it's going to get disappointing. It's going to get discouraging. Listen to me. You're going to get burnt. You're going to get hurt. People are going to let you down. People are going to lie to you. People are going to betray you. I'm not asking you to do anything easy. And you may, listen to me, you may not in your lifetime get to see any real fruit Do it anyway. Do it anyway, because this is how things get changed. This is how God reconciles the world back to himself is through the body of Christ. Ian Bounds said this. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, Here's what the church needs today, according to Ian Bounds. But men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. That is so true of Redemption Church. Look, we want to have a great children's ministry. We want to have a great youth ministry, a great senior adults, a great women's ministry, men's ministry, outreach. I would love to see all these things happen. But far, far, far more important than any program, any subsection area of ministry is prayer. Avid, fervent, bold prayer. Do you really believe that God keeps his promises? Like Nehemiah says as he quotes Deuteronomy. Do you really believe that God is all-powerful, like Nehemiah says as he quotes Deuteronomy? Do you really believe that Christ has reconciled the world unto himself, like Colossians says in chapter 1? Do you really believe that all of creation is subjected to futility and waiting for the reconciliation of Christ, like Romans 8 tells us? Do you really believe, like Corinthians tells us, that we are ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, that we are the plan? Do you really believe that? Well, we do what we believe. Another thing I love about Nehemiah's story is he doesn't just pray boldly. I love that he starts there. And that has to be where we start. So listen, at the end of this, I don't have some great program for you. I don't have, all right, here's seven ways we can go engage our community. I think we gotta start with taking prayer seriously. This church has got to become a house of prayer. But then I love, man, I love Nehemiah's boldness. Chapter two, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. He was the cupbearer. And now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? There's nothing, this is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. Listen, standing before the king in this time was a scary ordeal. You mess up, and best case scenario, you're going to prison. And so he says to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? And its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, remember what I said earlier. It's quite possible that Nehemiah, that King Artaxerxes, is actually one of the ones that helped destroy the gates. How, if that's true, how dangerous would it be for Nehemiah to say this? And then the king said to me, "What are you requesting?" I love this, so I prayed to the God of heaven. This is great. This is, this is a good lesson for you to catch for a second. See, we start off with this long, bold days and days of prayer and fasting and praying scripture and on his face and just crying out to God for days. And I think we should have that in our lives. Listen, we should have that kind of prayer in our lives. But then in this moment, he just says a little prayer just a little see i think so many of us are good at one or the other right maybe we're good at scheduling that time we have our quiet time or we sit down with the lord and we open god's word and we pray and we spend our time but then it's so compartmentalized in our lives these are probably more your type a checklist people you got it done you checked it off the list now let's go about the day and do everything else And then some of you maybe aren't as good at setting that time aside. But throughout the day, maybe you'll have a little conversation with God here and there, here and there. See, I love Nehemiah. It's a great example here of doing both. I think it requires both prayer that's focused and prayer in the moment. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, well, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time frame. And and I said to the king, if it pleases the king. I love this. He, He just keeps going. So he got a yes and he thought, let me just ask something else. Let's see how far we can go. If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. In other words, hey, look, Israel, Judah's not like right next door. I'm going to have to pass through some enemy territory here. You think maybe you could write me a little letter to make sure I travel through safe. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may, he's getting bold here, listen to this, that he may give me some timber. To make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. So not only, hey, can you give me some time off, boss? I need, I need to take a vacation for X amount of time, a few months. Hey, okay, could you write me a letter? Yeah, no problem. Hey, do you mind build me a house there for while I'm there and give me like some other materials to rebuild the wall with that you maybe tore down? This is some bold ask. And then, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Hmm. I'll stop there for that. This is a bold partnership. Listen, boldness comes from hope. 2 Corinthians 3.12 says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. See, he could be bold with the king because he'd already met with the king of kings. He could be bold with the king because he knew more intimately the real king, the king of kings, the creator of the universe, God himself, and he'd already spent days with him. So he could boldly ask, listen, I want us as a church to commit to pray. So here's what I'm gonna tell you. We have one program time right now to pray, 8.45, Sunday mornings. I would love to outgrow the, the welcome center, and come pray in here. I would love for it to take so long, we got to move it back to 8.30, and then we got to move it back to 8.00. I'm, I'm willing to shift on whatever. If you guys want to set cottage prayer meetings like, like we used to do, and meet in different people's homes, you want to start meeting at a different time, and, and really focus on praying. And, I'm, and when I mean praying, I mean like praying for this church and for this city. But if we take that seriously, then I say we figure out what some bold partnerships could be. Why, why can't we ask to talk to the mayor? Why can't we ask to talk to whoever? When John Slattery, who owned Canterbury Gardens Apartments, came and talked to me when I first moved here, I thought about Nehemiah and the way he asked things and That partnership has dissolved and they've sold that property. We no longer have access, but we did for a season. And and I'll tell you what I asked. I I hadn't even started here yet. I was actually just here looking for somewhere to live and and he came to the church and I was talking to him. Multi-million dollar guy. um, Flies up in his private plane from Jupiter, Florida. One of five investors that owns this property and so he said he wanted us to partner with helping make an impact in that apartment community. So I said, well, I'd like to do a block party. And he said, great, let's do it. And I said, well, I don't really have enough people or money. And he said, well, I'll make my staff do it. How much money do you need? And I thought, I'm just going to go crazy. I said, I need $3,000. So he said, done, not a problem. And I said, you know what I really need? He goes, what? I said, I really need a free apartment to put some missionaries in. Because I would like to take some people, commission them from our church as missionaries, and move them into those apartments so they could make an impact on that community. And we got to have two different families live in that apartment for free as missionaries and engage that community until the partnership was dissolved. Why? Because I just asked. Why not? He said, I want you to do movie nights. I said, then I need you to buy me an inflatable screen, a sound system, and a projector. It'll cost about $5,000. He said, okay, I'll do it. Because I just asked. Why? Because I'd already been praying about it. I'd already spent a lot of time praying for God to give us direction and opportunities. Listen, church, this will never be easy. Because you look at what keeps going on here, the next step is bold perseverance. I think we get scared of the difficulty. We get scared of the danger. We get scared of rejection. We get scared of the awkwardness. We get scared that we're insufficient. We get scared that we won't have an answer to a question. We get scared that it's just going to be weird or socially awkward. And I think I think sometimes we give small things too much credit because we forget where our boldness comes from. Our boldness comes from our hope in Christ. When we remember that that's where our boldness comes from, 2 Corinthians 3.12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. When we remember where boldness comes from, then we don't have to sweat the small things. Sometimes we are like Superman. Here's what I mean. In the original Superman television series, a long time ago, there was always this great thing that would play out. I remember even as a kid noticing this. Um, I've always been a very logical thinker and analytical, and I'm watching Superman as a kid. And Superman is getting shot, and as he's getting shot by this gun, he is shoulders wide, hands on his hips, just bullets bouncing off of him, pew 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 pew. One thing that bothered me: he's never thought about where are those bullets going, right? But here was the crazy part to me: eventually, the bad guy would run out of bullets, and then he'd take his gun. And he'd throw it at Superman. And Superman would duck. What? You just got shot by like fifteen bullets. I don't think throwing a gun at you is gonna do anything. See, I think sometimes we're like Superman and maybe in the big things when we're diagnosed with cancer, when we're going through a divorce, when we lose a loved one, it's so big, we know we have to just depend on God. And so like Superman, we stand with our shoulders wide and our chest out and our hands on our hips and we take the bullets because we have hope that Jesus will bring us through this. But it's in the little things that we duck. Let's be bold. Let's be bold in the little things and the big things. Let's be bold in our prayer. Let's be bold in our partnerships. And let's be bold as we persevere through difficulty. See, I'm not going to read you a lot of the rest. but just summarize the story for you. First, Nehemiah gets there, hangs out for a couple of days, and then at night with just a few guys, he kind of surveys the situation. Now, why would he do that? Here, here's something that's good. Boldness does not mean recklessness. Here, here's, see, Nehemiah knew he wanted to rebuild this place. But he also knew that if he just showed up and told everybody, hey, I've got some timber, I've got some stuff, we're going to rebuild everything, that he, he doesn't have the plan yet. He's not ready. And so he'd just jump in and it would probably cause more problems then it would good. So he goes at night, so nobody can know, and he kind of just surveys, and he's taking notes, and he's thinking through where the weakest parts of the wall are, what are the most important parts of the wall. So then he comes back, and he brings everybody together, and he goes, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to rebuild the wall. Well, man, word got out to a couple of jerks, Sanbalat, Tobias, and this other guy. I mean, they got word, and... And they weren't, they weren't cool with it, so they start coming at them. And here, I just want to read you a couple of verses that I love. So in chapter four, in, into chapter 3, chapter 4, even in chapter 2, we start to see this tension with these guys. They start mouthing off against it, bickering about it, coming at them. And I love, so it's, it's been talking about these guys. And then verse 6 of chapter 4 just says this. So we built the wall. So we built the wall. So these guys were coming at us, they're running their mouths, they're, they're doing all these things, and so we just built the wall. Didn't say, so we stopped and argued with them and showed them that we're exactly right and they're exactly wrong and they better get on, get on page with us, they better figure out what's right and wrong. We didn't yell at them, we didn't make banners, we didn't boycott them, we didn't scream at them, and we just built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to have its height for the people who had a mind to work. And then later on it comes up again and and it starts to really infuriate these guys that they're not having an effect. They start getting angrier because they've come against this rebuilding and then they just keep building. And so then they say that they're going to get violent. Verse 9, And we prayed to our God and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And Judah, it was said... The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. But if you know the story, they keep going. And they just keep going. And they rebuild the wall in record time. And it tells us kind of an order of how they built things. And here's something I want you to see. The first thing they did the first thing they did was the high priest came and they built the sheep gate. Now why is that significant? Because listen, and this is so, so important. If you've been tuned out, fallen asleep, haven't been paying attention, catch this. You got to catch this. If all we do is go out there and lower the crime rate and increase education, we have failed. If we go out there and get rid of crime and we make that an A rated school and, and there's no issues like that and, and, and marriages are better and all these things, listen to me, if that's all we accomplish, we fail. The first gate they build is the sheep gate because that's where they bring in sacrifices for the day of atonement. Because that's where it starts, that's where it ends. That's what fuels it. We are not a humanitarian nonprofit organization about community betterment. We are a light of the gospel in the darkness of this world that is ruled by the prince of the earth that will lose. God, listen to me, God will, will, will reconcile this community back to himself. He will. Whether we choose to ignore it, avoid it, or engage it, he'll do it. But we will be held accountable to whether we decide to be a part of it or not. Paul Tripp says this, the world in all its brokenness cry out for one thing, a redeemer. Just like Zerubbabel and Ezra, Nehemiah's efforts don't have a happy ending. If you read all the way to the end of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah gets really frustrated. Um, He sees that all of Zerubbabel's efforts to rebuild the temple are somewhat to vain because it's in disregard, it's being treated in unholy ways, it's not being maintained. And he gets so angry And then he looks and he sees that all of Ezra's efforts to teach the Torah and teach people holy living has kind of been in vain because now people are just going back to to working on the Sabbath and, and doing all sorts of other things against what Ezra taught them. And then even in his own efforts, after the wall is rebuilt, he sees that they're disregarding the rules of the wall and there are certain things about how you have markets and not up against the wall, but they would have these markets up against the wall and... Nehemiah gets so mad. He like rips people's hair out, literally. He gets so angry. So here, here's what you've got to get. This is so important. Every time we've talked about these guys in the story, we've got to be careful. Nehemiah's not Superman. He's not a hero. He's not a hero. There's some good examples in the beginning of the story, but he's not a hero. And listen to me, neither are you. And neither am I. We can't go... With a savior complex and go, we've got it all together. We've got it fixed. We've got the answer. You're the ones that are broken. See, go back to Nehemiah's prayer. One of the key things in his prayer was confession. Here's what we got to get your walls are broken, your walls are down. The people that he had come in and help him out, their walls were broken. Listen, we aren't the heroes. We don't have everything right. We, on an individual and a corporate basis, need to look and ask God what we need to repent of. In your life, you need to ask God, what do I need to repent of? Where am I holding on to pride and arrogance? Where am, I, where am I choosing to be disobedient? Where am I choosing not to give myself fully to you? Where have I not put up walls to protect my life from unholiness? So here's the deal. As you see what's going on in our community, as you look at those crime stats and you hear statistics and you watch the news, you look at our country, I read this, this week in Pew Research that, this blew my mind, in America, a teenager is less likely to grow up in a home with both biological parents than any other country in the world. Teenagers are less likely to grow up with both biological parents in America than anywhere else in the world. As you look at this brokenness, what are you going to do? Are you going to ignore it? Are you going to just avoid it and shelter yourself? Or will you boldly engage it? All right, well then, let's get off our high horse for a second and remember this. Are you willing to survey your own life, like Nehemiah did the wall? Are you willing to use God's word to survey your life? see where you stand and as you become aware of your need for a redeemer what will you do will you ignore it will you avoid it or will you engage it we all are broken we all need a redeemer you know why nehemiah's story doesn't end well Because Nehemiah is not a redeemer. He's not good enough. We're not good enough. Guys, great plans to go out and engage this community aren't enough. This is why we have to start with prayer. Great, listen, great plans to better your own life just aren't good enough. But God is. And so, as we close, here's what I want you to do. I have no doubt I have zero doubt that the Holy Spirit, through his word, has spoken to you this morning. Now, have you listened? Have you heard? Are you going to ignore it? Are you going to avoid it? I don't know. But I have zero doubt that through God's word, he has spoken. So you have three choices. Ignore it, avoid it, or engage. I'm asking you, as a pastor, as far as the community goes, for us to become a house of prayer. And I mean really a house of prayer. I mean fervent, mighty, bold prayer. And I need you. I need you. I need us to do it together. I need us to do it corporately. I need you to do it on your own. And let's see what God says to do. And as God speaks, let's be bold in what we ask for. Let's be bold as we go about it. But let's start with bold prayer. And then for you, in your own life, maybe your walls have never even been built. Maybe you're not even yet a follower of Christ and you've not given your life to Christ and you're so broken and so desperate in need of a redeemer. Don't ignore it. Don't avoid it. Listen to his drawing today and respond in kind. Let's pray.